Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. But I want to tell you, that's not what um, large media tells us. It wasn't poverty, crime, or drug abuse. Those actually rank low on our survey. We're finding out really what the challenges are, not what they're being told they should be. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachia Meets World. We're back another week. It's Will and Neil. What's up, bro? Big weekend ahead. Labor Day. Yeah, yeah, man. Looking forward to it. A time of rest and relaxation for most, but most importantly, in my mind, you you know what kicks off this weekend. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. It's typically, you know, bittersweet. It's the unofficial end of summer, or at least that's how most kids look at it because school's starting back. But for you, it's the start of college football. Yes, sir. Looking forward to it, man. I, I got the itch already. Just uh, high school season's already started. Just been waiting on the college season. So cats take on Ball State this weekend in a home opener. So looking forward to that one for sure. But there's games all over the country to enjoy. Yes, sir. I was also going to ask you, do you wear white past Labor Day? I do not. Because I have always, you know, tried to follow the fashion rules, I guess. That's one of those things that I've always seen you wear white after Labor Day. And I've been (laughs) like, God, he just doesn't get it. But I try to follow the the fashion rules. Yeah, I guess I just don't get it. (laughs) I know it doesn't it doesn't matter to you. I get you. I get you. It's weird, though. You know, people associate Labor Day as the kind of end of, like I said, the end of summer, football starting, barbecues. And we always kind of think about Memorial Day, Labor Day being similar. But Memorial Day, you know, is obviously about the veterans that had passed. But Labor Day isn't really about that at all. It's about the working people, the workers movement, the labor movement back in the day. Today in time, I'm not sure that that registers with most of us. It All that registers is that it's a day off of work. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just a little bit of history on, on Labor Day that I wasn't aware of. It became official holiday in 1894. They really credit the General Assembly of the Knights of Labor who convened in New York City in September of 1882. They had a public parade on September 5th. The Central Labor Union of New York, the CLU, one member of that, Matthew McGuire, is kind of thought of as the father of Labor Day, proposed it to be held on the first Monday of September as a result of this public demonstration. So since that time, 
as of 1894, became official holiday as the first Monday of September. There's your little history. I appreciate that. So people have not been working on Labor Day since the 1800s. So it's telling me. <laughs> I know. We celebrate the labor movement by not working. Not working. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I, I noticed there were a couple of state laws in the books in Virginia, which is part of Appalachia. The, the amusement park industry actually lobbied to get legislation passed that schools could not start until after September 1st. Uh, became known as the King's Dominion Law because of King's Dominion Amusement Park. I love that, actually. I wish I wish that it would occur everywhere. You know, these school children, man, they need their summer. I mean, I my agree. kids have been in school for a month already. You know, we really have the summer because of the agrarian society we had back in the day. The kids got off so they could work on the farms. Right. Yeah. I need I need them to work another month. They don't need to go to school <laughs> just yet. I mean, I got chickens to feed. You know, <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> grass to mow. I mean, come on. I, I will mention that law got repealed in 2019. Uh, so not yeah. everyone was happy about it. Yeah. I, I did want to mention real quick also as an update to last week's episode, the Pikeville Panthers were victorious over Johnson Central. Yeah, what a game. Coach McNamee, man, he's back to his winning ways. He, I, I talked to him back in the summer, and he was uh, concerned about this about this team coming into the season, but I think he was just bluffing me. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think he's definitely underplaying his team. They are yeah. solid. They are stacked. That's what good coaches do, though, Will. They stay hungry and humble. Do you have any other app news for me today? I want to mention a couple of things. One, in, in honor of Labor Day, there was a Mother Jones, which, you know, we've talked about Mother Jones on here before, grandmother or historic figures in regards to early labor movements. She was big into the United Mine Workers, and we've talked about her. Go, go listen to our previous episode on the, the Mine Wars, and we talked about her quite a bit. But in the Mother Jones, there's an article in regards to renewable energy jobs in Appalachia, uh, we'll post the article. It's a pretty good article. It's talking about how the Inflation Reduction Act is bringing a lot of funding into Appalachia in regards to renewable energy and how it's turning the economy around. So we'll post that. I just want to mention that real quick. Another article I saw in unison with that was converting toxic waste in abandoned coal mines, a rare earth elements. You know, rare earth elements are used to manufacturing of electronics, electric vehicles, lighting, lasers, and China kind of dominates the market. So this article talks about these rare earth elements that are in abandoned coal mines because they form in, from coal waste. And so they talked about a couple of options of trying to extract these rare earth elements from the coal waste. One, to reduce environmental damage of the Abandoned coal mines, but also to reduce the dependence on China's surplus. We'll post that article. I thought it was interesting. It's not happening yet, but it's a possibility if they can do it the right way. That's the best use of abandoned coal mines that I've heard yet, Will. I mean, I know we've done a lot of great things over the years, but I'm interested to read that article also. A little piece of news. There's a st recent study that came just came out. Appalachian fracking counties are shedding jobs and residents. It's kind of a, uh, it's an article that we'll post, but it, it links to 
to the study. They're doing fracking in eight of the 13 Appalachian counties. That's New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, Maryland, Tennessee, Virginia, and Kentucky. This study done by the Ohio River Valley Institute uh, focuses on the 22 counties of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia that produce 90% of the Appalachian natural gas through fracking. They found that since 2008, those 22 counties that produce 90% of the natural gas have lost over 10,000 jobs and almost 50 thousand residents. So the promise growth has not happened is, is really what the study is suggesting. Pretty telling article that we'll post. A couple other small pieces of news real quick. There's a 2023 festival guide for West Virginia. I know we talked about Labor Day being the end of summer. Also almost think of it as the end of festival season. We're, we're going to post this guide, the West Virginia Festival Guide. It's really good. It talks about all the festivals going on. There are some more that are going on in September and October in West Virginia. One of those is the Mothman Festival, September 16th and 17th. That's one of our favorites. So we'll post that and you can check out all the upcoming festivals in West Virginia. It's a really good source. Also, we want to keep an eye on some pending legislation that just got proposed, national legislation, the Connect Act of 23. It was introduced, just recently introduced. It's the USDA Reconnect Loans and Grants to get funding quicker to rural communities in regards to developing broadband and internet access. So um, we'll keep an eye on that. It just got introduced. Also, I want to mention the SOAR Summit, October 3rd and 4th. It's coming up. They just released their agenda. Check that out on SOAR's website. We'll post it. It's going to be at the Corbin Arena this year in Corbin, Kentucky. Awesome. It's always a good time. Yep. SOAR, one of our sponsors. We appreciate them much. The last little piece of Appalachian news. The ARC, in regards to the Appalachian Collegiate Research Initiative, or what used to be the Appalachian Teaching Project, just released the 13 colleges that would be participating this year. They are Alfred State College out of New York, Appalachian State University out of North Carolina, Auburn University, East Tennessee State University, Frostburg State University out of Maryland, Glenville State University out of West Virginia, Indiana University of Pennsylvania, Moorhead State University out of Kentucky, Muskegon University out of Ohio, Seton Hall University out of PA, University of Pittsburgh, University of Tennessee, and Virginia Tech. So those are the 13 participating colleges in the Appalachian Collegiate Research Institute, and the applications for students will be opening up soon. So check that out. That's it. Lots of app news today, man. A lot going on in Appalachia in the fall. So looking forward to some of those events myself, everything. Appreciate it, bro. You know, we talked about some of those towns losing jobs in the news. Well, we have a couple ladies on today that are going to be talking about how you can save your town. Their focus is really on small towns and how the community can come together to help save their own towns. Really looking forward to this conversation, Will. We kind of know already that these two ladies come from really, really small towns and they are thriving in their role in their community and helping other communities uh, all over. So uh, I hope you guys will enjoy this this discussion and uh, I look forward to it as well. So if you don't have anything else for me, man, let's get right into it. All right, let's do it.
So tonight we have a special duo, Deb Brown and Becky McCray. Deb was born in a small town in Iowa and now resides in Mississippi. She's been an entrepreneur since she raised her first hog in Iowa, as well as a chamber president, an underwriter, retail manager, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Becky, Becky lives in small town Oklahoma and has been a small business owner, a city administrator, an executive of nonprofits, and a business mentor. And now they both consult, study, write about, present on, and live in and work with small towns. Deb separately with Building Possibility and Becky with Small Biz Survival. Together, they both have founded Save Your Town, where they believe small towns can be saved by their own people using their own resources. They also recently published a survey of rural challenges, which we definitely want to dive into. But I wanted to say thank you both for being on the episode. It's an honor and we greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Yes, we're excited to be here. Like most Appalachians are big on history, big on tradition. Neil and I, we're big on tradition as well. One of those traditions, we have appetizers at the holidays. Like we have this gigantic spread of appetizers, usually bigger than the meals. So we wanted to ask you both, do you have a, a favorite appetizer or holiday dish? My mother made the best no-bake chocolate oatmeal cookies ever. And my brother and I would fight over them and eat them for appetizers. And now my niece makes them and I still love them just as much. Not your traditional appetizer, but it worked in our family. Hey, but nothing and, wrong with starting with dessert. And my mother, her appetizer was margaritas. And so I have my mother's beloved margarita recipe. So now you know everything you need to know about right. my family. We might need to try that at Thanksgiving. I mean, it's uh, it, it could get interesting in our house. <laughs> All right. Now that we get that, that question out of the way, you know, your focus is on small towns. So why small towns? Why rural? There's not very many of us doing it. And both of us are small town people. Becky lives in a town of 30 people. And like you said, I come from a town of 141 people. We want to bring to rural people the things that they want to hear. We want to see what their big ideas are and help them find ways to achieve them. That's where our heart lies. I've always lived in small towns or small communities since I was about six. That background of working in a small town, of knowing people, of um, my husband and I are cattle ranchers here. We used to run a retail store for almost 13 years. All of that came together in 2006. I started blogging at Small Biz Survival because I wanted to share everything I had figured out about small town businesses. Um, and I figured emailing that to my 14 closest friends was just going to get them to like block my email. So I put it on a blog and that's still going since 2006. And so after this many years, it has brought a lot of attention to the question of rural entrepreneurship. Um, I was the only rural entrepreneurship blog when I started. And now there are just bunches of people who address the question of rural entrepreneurship. And I think that is a very positive trend for rural places that we're seeing more attention on the question of the kind of businesses and projects and activities that we build ourselves. Just to clarify, and I live in a small town in East Kentucky, but did you say there's 30 people? 33, a new family just moved in. 33, that's a 10% increase. So 
Do you have everybody in town on speed dial? Well, no, I just go step out here and tell my neighbor <laughs> and he'll tell everybody else. So I don't need to speed dial. <laughs> what a great, easy line of communication. I love it. Half the people are related. That's the Percival family. So they probably <laughs> do have each other all on speed dial. My neighbor will go around. He'll tell everybody everything. We have one bank. We have a post office. We have a church and we have a grain elevator where they store the wheat after harvest. Um, and there's two fuel pumps there. So we are like, we're pretty uptown for a town of 33. <laughs> you got everything you need, sounds like to me. You know, your your experience has really led to both of you all co-founding, I mentioned in the intro, Save Your Town, which the listeners can find at saveyour.town. Yep. Um, so I wanted to ask, can you just let our listeners know what that organization is that you have founded? What do you provide to small towns and what, what kind of work do you do? Be happy to. We specialize in low or no cost solutions. You know, the ones that work even in the tiniest of towns. Uh, we teach people to put their ideas into action, like the tour of empty buildings, empty lot economic development, cheap downtown placemaking ideas. We have short videos, audios, longer courses, and detailed toolkits. And then both Deb and I go and speak. And so we deliver keynotes. We do workshops at different conferences. We go places. Deb does idea-friendly action visits where she's in a town for three to four days to collect information and to help them make their ideas happen. And then also personal coaching when people just need a little help to make their idea happen. Survey of Rural Challenges. I know it's in its fifth edition. Uh, it's kind of where you surveyed hundreds of rural participants from across the globe. Uh, this past one, I think, ran from November to January of this year. Uh, I wanted to just ask you, what's the importance of the survey? The survey is so important because we've been doing it since 2015. We do it every other year. And we just ask people what their challenges are. What do you want help with in your rural community? Um, we let people decide whether they think they're rural. So we're not putting some, you know, standardized definition on it. You don't have to be from a town of 33. We don't, <laughs> there's no limit here as long as um, you feel like you have something to share on that. At this point, over 1,700 people have answered that survey. And it is amazing to me what they tell us. So we have some multiple choice questions where people can pick their challenges off the list, but then we open it up and there's open-ended questions and people tell us everything about their towns. And I mean, they tell us everything. They tell us everything that is wrong. They tell us everything that is right. They tell us what's the, the challenges holding them back and the most amazing things that they have accomplished. And so that feedback from real people in small towns really helps us be sure that what we are sharing with communities addresses their most important challenges. And I think that the, if there's anything that's super cool that we've learned from it, there's two things. Number one, you are not alone in having challenges in your community. Even the most amazing people doing the most amazing stuff in really great communities have challenges and often that's our other people in town. And the second thing that I think is really fascinating is we asked people how optimistic they were. How optimistic are you about your town's future? Do you think your town will be better off in 10 years? 
And rural people were twice as likely to say they were optimistic as they were to say they were pessimistic. And I thought that was just the most encouraging, fascinating piece of information that we've come up with lately. Yeah, that's really interesting because I don't think that's part of the narrative that you often hear in rural towns. Definitely not. Um, <laughs> and I will say that we looked at we looked at different regions compared to kind of the overall results. And looking at Appalachia, we found that that the results from those communities, roughly, I mean, we couldn't get it down to county by county, but that rough gathering compared to the national results, they were very similar. So the the challenges that we're going to share with you really do apply within your region as well. You, you know, we we interview like like both of you, people from outside the region, people from inside the region. What we found is whether it's urban, rural, large, small, that we all share many more similarities than we do differences. And I've wa- I wonder how your survey, your results kind of mimic that statement. But I also know that you break it down into two parts, the community challenge and assets, as well as the small business challenge and assets. You want to just talk about maybe some of the top challenge and assets? Well, I want to jump in. Um, I'm going to talk about the top community challenges and they come in lack of housing, inactive downtowns, uh, population losses, and lack of child care. Pretty standard across the board. But I want to tell you, that's not what um, large media tells us. It wasn't poverty, crime, or drug abuse. Those actually rank low on our survey. We're finding out really what the challenges are, not what they're being told they should be. For businesses, the top challenges were lack of workers support, lack of support services, and usable buildings, along with online competition and marketing. So it wasn't jobs or loans. Those rank low. And no business said they wanted a business plan or a pitch competition. You mentioned downtowns and empty buildings were at the top of the list. Yep. Usable buildings came way ahead of needing money, needing loans. Um, That is a priority. What about help with business services like marketing and, you know, building a business? Was that high or low on the list? Yeah. So support services really did show up in the top five of challenges that businesses are facing. And usable buildings, that question of usable buildings versus loan, every single time we've run this survey, the lack of usable buildings has ranked at least as high as needing a loan and has just over the past several surveys, it just keeps climbing. The lack of usable buildings holds more people back than the lack of a business loan. Um, Support services were a challenge. And interestingly, people said that they'd really like to get the same incentives for their business that outside businesses receive from economic development. So if if our people who are charged with developing our areas could give just as much support to our own businesses as they do to outside businesses, small businesses said that'd be awesome with them. And we had several people to uh, mention that explaining what's available and then being there for follow-up would really be helpful because yes. there are quite a bit of resources out there. But if you don't understand them, it's very hard to get a hold of them. So having someone be a lot clearer in providing resources and sticking with them going through the process with them is important as well. Those are all extremely interesting. One thing I have read through the survey, one thing I did see on it, Neil and I started our podcast to really dispel some of the misconceptions about Appalachia. You also mentioned 
in in the survey some of the misconceptions that you've seen or that you heard through the survey. One of those was that small town rural areas are not innovative or small town businesses in rural areas are not innovative. And that was quite the reverse on your survey. That was true in the when we asked small business people what their assets were, trying innovative ideas and keeping their marketing up to date using some of them up to date marketing techniques of live streaming video or connecting through social media profiles. Those were some of their very top assets, along with their own people and all of the things that they were getting in terms of support from their community. So those were the top assets, the top assets for communities were a lot of things around natural resources, outdoor recreation, tourism, and the number of people who talked about just wanting to live a place that they liked the place as one of the top assets or reasons that they liked their community. So it really comes a lot down to the place itself. And um, as a friend from Oklahoma told me, after listening to a long list of Oklahoma's shortcomings on whatever checklist of quality of life characteristics. She turned to me, her name's Cheryl Lawson. She turned to me and she said, and still we love it here. And I think that is the message of our place. And still we love it here. I was going to ask the biggest surprise or biggest outlier. You know, the first time we did the survey, I was really surprised the number of people who said our number one problem is other people in our community who hold us back. And that really influenced my thinking for a long time. People just, they talked about officials who wouldn't, wouldn't help, um, people that would throw regulations in their way, the number of people that would throw up a brick wall in front of a new idea. Does any of this sound familiar? I mean, this is not something that has changed yet. Um, and it kind of floored me the first time I ran the survey because um, I'm a little bit of a bull in a china shop and I just kind of push ahead and do my ideas. And so to find out that so many people were feeling held back by their own people was quite a surprise to me starting in 2015. Becky pointed out to me, you know, because I was like, oh, that's the committee of negativity and they're up to no good. And Becky pointed out to me, no, actually, they're trying to help you by mm -hmm. making sure you don't fail. Mm -hmm. And that really made me stop and think, oh, shoot, that's a little bit different then, isn't it? Um, and the statistics, Becky, you've got a better handle on it, on, on what our friends say about failure. It's just an opportunity to learn. But, you know, we um, as humans tend to think we're going to fail much more than we do. So author Margie Worrell tells us that doctors and scientists spent a long time putting people in to have their brains scanned as they had ideas. And what they determined by looking at our brains is that our brains lie to us about the likelihood of success, uh, failure, that we are a lot less likely to fail than what our brains tell us. And so we overestimate that risk of failure. And what we underestimate is the risk of sticking with the status quo, the risk of what is gonna happen to us if we just sit here and do things the way we've always done it. We know the future is coming fast. And if we haven't learned anything else from the past few years, it is that our situations can change extremely quickly and, and just sticking with the status quo is not going to be our best method of adapting to the new worlds that we find ourselves in. Yeah, I, I think you both have mentioned over the years, the survey has really influenced your thinking. How can communities use this survey? It's a great source of setting some priorities. 
And you do that not by saying, oh, well, the survey said childcare is the highest priority, so we must make it the highest priority. But it is about taking the survey results and opening the conversation in your community and saying, okay, so people on the survey said that the lack of housing, the inactive downtowns, the population losses, and the lack of childcare. What do we see in our community? What does it look like in Woods County, Oklahoma? And are these really the biggest challenges here? And once we know that, we can have those conversations within our community to set better priorities. Iowa State University did a 99-town, over 20-year study um, and found, you know, lots of things happen, both good and bad. But the researchers found that the, the towns that prospered the most were the ones that were open to new ideas and welcomed newcomers into decision-making. That's pretty important, being open to new ideas. And you guys are from small town. You know how hard it is to welcome newcomers in to help and make decisions. Um, so how can the survey help welcome more people and, and start with new ideas? Well, one of the things that we write about is we're not government people. We don't have to write a big, hairy plan for the entire community and county to live and die by and nothing ever gets done. We show people the idea-friendly method. Gather your crowd, take your big idea, gather your crowd, find some connections, build those up, and take the small steps. The people that are, are looking at the survey and using it in their community, it's much easier to have that small step conversation. Like, what can we do? What are some small steps we can start for the idea? Than it is to think about a great, big, huge strategic plan that is just becomes impossible to use. When I visited Caldwell, Kansas, the question was, what can we do about the lack of childcare in this community? So they brought together an administrator from the hospital, an administrator from the school system, a representative from one of the larger local employers, and then the telephone cooperative. Um, one of their representatives is actually who was hosting me on the tour. And we had the discussion, what can we do about the future of childcare in this community? And in the course of that conversation, it came up, the hospital had actually leveraged some Medicare dollars to start a childcare program with eight slots or thereabouts for their own staff members only. So they couldn't take in anybody else's children, but for staff members, they could provide childcare on site using those special dollars that were available to them. As we talked further, the school district had plans over the next two to three years to launch a bond issue. One of the things they were looking at and considering for the bond issue was adding a childcare facility as a part of the school district leading into their pre-K. And one of the major employers is there going, boy, this sounds great, but I don't know what we're gonna do about it for our own employees. By building those connections, we could see that there was this opportunity to use that initial placement at the hospital as kind of a training facility, as a chance for people to learn and get certified in running a childcare center. And then those people could potentially move out into the community. Those are the people that could um, be part of the education uh, at the school district, that they could be part of the childcare center there, or they could start their own daycare center out in the community, or maybe they're going to go and start a center for that large employer. But it was the matter of building the connections of realizing, okay, we have this one existing resource. How can we use that as an asset to connect with other things that are going to be happening in the community later? So the fact that 
one small center that has only a handful of slots and only for one certain employer is still a training resource and something we can use to develop further the childcare facilities in the community at large. And those things happen because people talk to each other. And we know community happens when people talk to each other. If you just expect somebody else to do it, how is it going to get done? Yeah, I know those networks, especially in small communities, are really important. We mentioned earlier about the challenges all often look similar no matter you know where you are, what region of the country you are, but solutions often look dis- different based on the assets. So I wanted to ask you, you know, you all work all over the country. So what are some of the unique solutions that you've seen in working in small towns? Yeah, Washington, Iowa had a huge old department store building and they couldn't fill it. It sat empty for 10 years. 10 years, that's a long time, maybe even longer. But some women got together and said, okay, let's uh, take 15,000 square feet of that that faces the main road, and we're going to divide it up into shared spaces. And that's what they did. They created a little village inside the store. All the little 200 square foot spaces faced the inside, but they weren't all 200 square feet. They were all different sizes, including push carts and tables in the middle. So that jewelry designer that wants to showcase her jewelry could be on one simple little table. And it gave people, these entrepreneurs, ways to take their ideas and try them out with uh, no huge investment in buying a building and trying to find people to buy, find their market and do all those things you have to do to start a business. This was a shared space with other entrepreneurs We talk about shared spaces a lot because it's a solution on using an empty building, first of all, but it's also a solution for growing entrepreneurs. So they may start in a small area, but if things work the way they need them or want them to work, they may end up in another building just down the street of their own. So if you go back to what the small businesses told us about finding a usable building is a huge challenge. Part of that challenge is It's hard to fill an entire building when you first start your business, but maybe you can just fill up a little tiny card table first (laughs) and then you can grow from there. You don't have to do the whole building all at the first before you do anything else in your business. We like to try to talk about some of the positives of the Appalachian region. We have guests on that there are their own success stories. We recently had Keith Gabbard on as the CEO of PRTC, which is a telephone co-op in Jackson County, Kentucky, a little town of McKee of about 1,200 people. They have some of the fastest internet in the country in this small rural eastern Kentucky town of McKee, Kentucky. And it was all based on Keith and his co-workers getting together and deciding to lay the fiber really early on. That's truly a success story for that small town. I wanted to ask you about any success stories uh, that you've seen. I know you mentioned a couple solutions. Have you seen any success stories in small towns that you've worked in? Well, you're talking about Jackson County. I spent some time with Keith. You're right. What a great guy. What we also found out there, um, when I was in Jackson, I was on an on-site visit. There was an empty lot and there were, we met with some artists in another building and they, they wanted to do some kind of art show, but they weren't quite sure how to go about that. So I just said, well, what about the empty lot? You can do it outside. You got a car show coming up, doing it, do it at the same time. And the empty lot needed some work done on it. 
But everybody jumped up and the woman that owned the lot said, sure, you can use it. I'll get my husband to weed whack it. So at least the weeds will be gone. And that has gone from back in April. They did that. This same group of the Jackson County Creative Community came together and they had kids draw applications of a mural they'd like to see in their town. So they had them draw murals and those go up next month. They just got together. People threw money at them. Yeah, we want to see our kids murals. We want to see them all around. It's become a very active group, that Jackson County Creative Community. They're doing amazing things with artists. And it started, you know, with an empty lot. What can we do with that empty lot? Okay, so Middle Tennessee Electric Cooperative wants to promote more adoption of electric vehicles within their service territory. Now, they sell electricity. This is a great deal for them, but it's also good for the environment and clean air around them. So they're working on this goal. How do you spur more people to uh, to buy an electric vehicle? So what they came up with, you know, they could do like, you know, a public interest campaign or they could do a big long educational thing. They could sit down, they could write a strategic plan for this. And instead they just started an EV car club. So here's how it works. You can send an email to Middle Tennessee Electric and say, hey, I want to be part of the car club. They'll sign you up. You get updates. They go to car shows and events. You do not need to own an electric vehicle to start because they want to help you learn about them. So you get to come to events. You get a test drive cars. You get to look under the hood and see how they work. You get information about you know, what are the resources available within our part of the state so that we can recharge our electric vehicle. So all of this to say it was a really simple idea. Let's just start a car club for people. And then that's going to draw more interest and adoption for electric vehicles. And to where did they get their initial members is that they looked among their own staff where they had been promoting electric vehicles to their staff for several years. They had a a small group of people who already owned electric vehicles and they used those as their pilot uh, members. And they started off on the circuit of going to events, talking to people and just making it really easy and relatable. People just like me already own an EV. That program has been adopted and adapted by Touchstone Energy, which is the National Rural Electric Cooperative um, idea source, and they connect all the electric cooperatives. Um, And so they're sharing that idea with other cooperatives across the country. Tyanesta, Pennsylvania, population 500 people with a river on one side and the Allegheny Forest on the other side. There's no room for growth really in that community. They had a building burned down. It took up the entire lot. The building burned down and they were waiting for another large concern to come and just buy the lot and put a new business there, right? Well, 10 years go by and nobody came. One of the economic development people on the committee had this idea, why don't we just take garden sheds and put them on that lot and turn them into little businesses? And Julia McRae, friend of ours, not related to Becky, said, that's fine. But as long as you put uh, a false front on it, that looks like the rest of the community. So once they got the designs, they they received their sheds from the manufacturer. They took them to a local carpenter who made them look like they belong in the downtown. And so they have created this little miniature village within their downtown, just on an empty lot. And each of these little sheds hosts 
an individual small business. And some of them, it may be the whole business. There's the guy that carves fishing lures. This is his only business outlet. The barbecue joint actually runs a little barbecue outpost from one of these sheds. There's a bakery from a nearby town. They bring their extra product over on the weekends and sell fresh baked bread from one of these sheds. They've, so they've attracted outside business investment, but they've also seen their own local people expand and grow because they've had access to a shed. One of their potters was named um, Rowan Rose. And so she and her husband make pottery. They started by renting one of the sheds. It costs like 50 bucks a month to rent a shed. So of course they've had a waiting list since they even opened. And so Rowan and her husband started selling their pottery there and they got, they grew too big. And so they had to actually buy a house because it came with a garage and the garage was located on the main street so they could sell pottery from it. So they actually grew their local businesses as well as attracting in some outside investment by putting some garden sheds on an empty lot. Some really incredible success stories of, of small towns building on their own assets. Very cool work. I, I wanted to mention your work and allow you the opportunity to let our listeners know of your website again and maybe where they can find resources on your website. So the website is save your S-A-V-E-Y-O-U-R dot town. We're not saving their town. They're saving their own town. That's why you're saving your town. So save your dot town. You will find, um, start with the free newsletter that we write every month. You can sign up for it right on the website and go all the way on up into our intensive action plan um, where we work very closely with you over a period of six months. So there's lots of range to try $9 videos based around your topic or that thing that you're worried about through speaking in your community, at events, or at chamber dinners, or at conferences, whatever it is that you want. Absolutely. If you go to saveyour.town, one of the items in the menu is the idea-friendly method, and that will take you to a nice article that says the idea-friendly method explained, which is all about how do you take your big idea for your community, gather your crowd around that idea, and then you take your crowd and turn it into a powerful network by building connections. You and your newly powerful network start making it happen by taking small steps. And so that's idea-friendly method. You can search it, or you can just go to savior.town. It's at the top. There's more information about the survey. There's a link for the store where you can find our audios, our videos, toolkits to help walk you through projects like the tour of empty buildings. And there's also articles there. Um, and then each of us also have articles archived at our other sites. Deb has um, several years of articles at Building Possibility. And I have articles going all the way back to 2006 at smallbizsurvival.com. Very cool. Thanks for sharing. I, I wanted to ask, since you're not from the Appalachian region, what's the most interesting or exciting or best part of your own small town? Oh my gosh, I gave such a, con a commercial for Hopeton earlier. Hopeton, Oklahoma, population 33, Woods County, Oklahoma. We have a one-room schoolhouse at the north end of town. It's a historic schoolhouse building that is now, like a lot of empty buildings, it's being currently used for storage, but it is an amazing piece of history that is was relocated here when this town picked up stakes in the early 1900s and relocated to come be where the railroad was. Geneva, Iowa, 
Poppy, I think they might be up to 150 now. Just outside of Geneva, Iowa is the first stone house in the county built by Leander Reeves, who came from the furthermost, uppermost county in Ohio, which is part of Appalachia. He uh, rode the train. He got on a stagecoach, hit the Mississippi River and walked the rest of the way to the middle of northern Iowa. Um, his brother was there living in a sod house along a river, and his brother had written him to come. They built this house, and the only reason he built it was his wife wasn't coming until somebody built him a proper house. That house is still standing and still an artifact in our community, and people come to visit it all the time. I was very involved with the Old Stone House, and I will love it till the day I die. History matters. Do you have a favorite restaurant in your town? I love my sister-in-law's cooking. How's that? <laughs> and and my husband does grilling out back. So, I mean, we don't have another restaurant. <laughs> I love these small towns. Since you put out the survey of rural challenges, I got to ask you, what's the number one challenge in your own small town? Empty buildings. The community I just left before I moved to Mississippi, definitely empty buildings was the the challenge. And the empty building tour was created out of the fact that there were 14 empty buildings in the downtown when I went there for an interview for a job. So empty buildings has always got a soft spot in my heart. For Hopeton, I would say that our challenge is availability of housing and the condition of housing. There are a number of older houses in this little town that are in rough shape, and we've lost several over the last few years to deterioration. So I would say it's definitely the availability and the condition of the housing. When you get that new family of three moving in, they definitely need somewhere to live, right? (laughs) They do. They took the last house that's available right now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We ask everyone this, but we got to ask you, cornbread or biscuits? You can't pick what's like, what's the situation? Those are that's conditional on the situation. I love hot water cornbread. That's one of my favorite things to eat. I've never heard that. That, that must be some with cornmeal thing. and hot water and fried on really high fat. Yep. Former what? mother-in-law taught me that. Is that cornbread cakes? Is that the cakes that we have now? Well, maybe because it doesn't maybe. rise. Sounds like it. They called it hot water cornbread. I like some the parts of the country. They call that pancakes. he's got you there Deb (laughs) okay Neil (laughs) one thing that I always get asked when I tell someone where I'm from first one of the first things they usually ask me is I ever seen Justified so (laughs) I know Deb has seen Justified Becky I'm not sure if you have but I wanted to ask you as just as a Justified fan are you team Raylan or team Boyd Oh, that's a hard question. I started out Team Raylan because he was the good guy. But boy, Boyd was really yanking on my chain there towards the end. And I actually kind of became Team Ava, just so you know. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Boyd was turning you, but you went to Ava, I see. Yep, yep. I just I just checked with Mr. McRae, who says Team Braylon. <laughs> okay, well, I wanted to ask you both this. You meant, you just said, Deb, that Raylan was the good guy, but is he? Is he really a good guy? Okay, he's a good guy from Eastern Kentucky. <laughs> There's your answer, right? He's as good as he could be. 
Okay, I don't know how to take that, but... <laughs> it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> okay, Mr. McRae says, Raylan may not be a good guy, but he gets to shoot more people. <laughs> good answer. Good answer. Good answer. One of my favorite co- quotes from that movie, since we're on Unjustified, was the last word spoken by Boyd, we dug coal together. I think that's the best ending or, or line that, that someone could end with of any show of, of all time. But there's another line in that movie that I think could become your all's credo or motto or, or just on your website. Small towns never forget. Yeah, it's true. Small towns never forget. The stories are what make us thrive and continue to grow. And if your town is not telling the stories of your people and your businesses, you are not going to survive. You've got to share the good news. Tell the stories because small towns never forget. You're right. Now, the flip side of that is sometimes we need them to forget or at least, (laughs) you know, maybe don't bring up what you tried in 1974 and use that as a reason not to try something in 2023 and beyond. So um, a really smart person said a long time ago, you can look at the past, but you probably shouldn't stare at it for too long. Well said. Well (laughs) said. I ask everybody and it's always I'm always interested to hear what's the first thing that comes to your all's mind when you hear the word Appalachia? Mountains. I am from the prairie, Oklahoma, northwest Oklahoma. We're real flat here and um, Mm -hmm. we don't have mountains. (laughs) So my sister-in-law is from West Virginia. So the thing that comes to my mind is the stories that she's always told about the people from her neck of the woods. I also wanted to ask you uh, something else that we ask everyone, place and perspective, really important to Neil and I, places like a character in it to, to itself in Appalachia. We wanted to ask you just, what do you call home? I think you already alluded to this. What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? Uh, Geneva's home will always be home. That's where my family is. Uh, that's where I was raised. I don't live there anymore, and I probably never will live there anymore. But that's where the heart always goes first. You know, it is uh, Northwest Oklahoma is home for me. And the interesting thing is, I didn't live here all my life. I wasn't born here. I lived in Oklahoma City. I lived in several places in Texas before I came back here. But um, my family was following the oil boom. And so we were part of the the oil patch. And I spent a lot of time around truck drivers and <laughs> around mechanics. And every summer, my parents would drop the three, three of us off with our grandparents in Northwest Oklahoma. And so those summers that we spent here really shaped our character and who we are. And I don't think that will ever change. Both awesome answers from experts of small towns. We wanted to thank you both for being on the episode. Uh, We appreciate the work you do, especially those small rural towns. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your time. and, And thank you again for the work you do. Thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, man, I told you it would be interesting. And I'm, you know, I'm still amazed at all the great things these ladies do uh, in and around their communities and with helping so many other communities. So 
I hope our listeners enjoyed it as I did. And uh, I look forward to following up with them at a later date. Yeah, definitely. Save your dot town. They have an incredible amount of resources on their website. So again, check that out. But I love the kind of best practices that they talked about in the episode. The solutions that they provided in those communities are doing some really cool, innovative work in those small towns. You know, they talked about in the survey of how small towns are actually much more innovative than people think. And just these ideas and these best resources, check out their website. They're all over the country, small towns in Appalachia, and I know they do quite a bit of work. So check out their website, reach out to them if your community, if your small town is in need. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And we want to thank them again for being on the episode. We appreciate the time that they gave us to talk about some of the stuff that they're doing in these small towns. Thank you so much, ladies. Enjoyed it. Will, overall, man, great episode. I did have one more question for you, though, Will. Do you have a uh, business of the week for us to highlight? I do, Neil, since, you know, they talked about best practices. They talked about solutions. I wanted to focus on one that they discussed that's in Appalachia, the Tionesta Market Village, which is in Tionesta, Pennsylvania. I wanted to highlight them as the app biz of the week. It's actually a village, so there are several businesses within the village, but the little bit of history of the village, it started 10 years ago. They just celebrated their 10-year anniversary. Like they said in the episode, it's a thriving village that they've created out of these garden sheds on an empty lot. So thriving that they have a wait list of people trying to get into these garden sheds, this little village. So some of the businesses that are in it are the Backstreet Gardens, Warner's Bakery, Ye Old Candy Shop, Eagle River Artisans, Kathy's Treasures, Darla's Designs. Those are just a few, but we wanted to highlight one from the village. It's Matt's Happy Cow Barbecue. If you're in the area, you can go check out the food. I think he actually sells some barbecue sauce. The Village itself website is marketvillage-tionesta, which is spelled T-I-O-N-E-S-T-A dot com. And Matt's Happy Cow Barbecue is site, which is W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com. And we'll post both of those in the show notes, but we want to give the Matt's Happy Cow Barbecue a little shout out. We haven't tried their food, but we've heard good things. It was established in 2016 in this little market village, which I think is a extremely cool idea. And also giving a, a total shout out to the TNS Market Village in Tionesta, Pennsylvania. So that's the app biz of the week, Neil. Awesome, man. And once again, we wanted to thank Deb Brown, Becky McCray for joining the show, uh, introducing all the work that they're doing with their focus in, in small towns. So I guess, Neil, uh, since we're at the end of the episode, we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains getting lighter, the air's getting thin, now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long, sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs, now I'm back up where I belong, in the mountains again.